Good morning. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 21. We're continuing our study of characters in the Old Testament. And today we're going to talk about some colorful characters. We're going to talk about Ahab. We're going to talk about Jezebel. And we're going to talk about Naboth. Is that pronounced right? Close enough? Bear with me if it doesn't hit your ear just right. Ahab, king of Israel. Jezebel, his wife. And Naboth, uh, owner of a vineyard. Before we get into the story, I'd like to give a little background information because there's things that precede that give little tidbits because we really want to understand our characters, take a look at our characters. Jezebel, Jezebel. Raise your hand if you've ever heard somebody name their daughter Jezebel. <laughs> you know, there's, there's pretty notorious characters in the Bible. Judas, I, and there are people that are named Judas. Um, in Portuguese, the book of Jude, that's Judas. Okay, But not even in Portuguese do they have the name Jezebel, I don't think. Do they not? Jania. Anybody named Jezebel? We're going to see why. Okay, this is a woman you probably would not want to meet, let alone be under any kind of control of hers. Okay, it says in 1 Kings, just keep yourself there in um, 1 Kings 21, and I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. So if your words don't line up word for word, it's because I prefer um, the New American Standard. And you're probably reading from the New King James. Okay, in 1 Kings 16.30, it says that Ahab, which was the king of Israel, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So he outdid everyone that came before him. Ahab, evil king. Okay, it, came, it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he married Jezebel. In other words, all the things that he'd done before that were grave sins in the sight of God, they're nothing trivial compared to marrying Jezebel. Okay. Now, if you're single here this morning, you really want to perk up your ears because you're going to get a good hint here of what not to do. She was the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. So she was a daughter of a king which made her a princess and went to serve Baal and worship him. Okay, so Ahab worshipped and served a foreign god, which was no god, a god of a foreign people. And he had also made Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So his actions provoked God to anger. That's one thing you never want to do is provoke an all-powerful God to anger. And he provoked God to anger by marrying this woman and adopting the practices of her people, idol worship. And he brought it to Israel. Okay, First Kings 17.4 says, It came about when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. So we see Jezebel's antagonistic toward the prophets of God. She's antagonistic toward God. Perhaps you know someone that's antagonistic toward God. They're taking after Jezebel. She destroyed the prophets of God. 
She was a force to be reckoned with. She was the daughter of a king and now a wife of a king. And she wielded a lot of influence. 1 Kings 18, 17, And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you? Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. So her husband is following her. She's bringing her idol worship from her father's house, from her father's country, to Israel, and he's following along. Now then, send and gather me at your... Uh, gather me to... Um, excuse me. In verse 19, Now send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, or Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Okay, so in Elijah's day, not only did Jezebel kill the prophets of God, but she had 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah eating at her table. She provided for them. She wined and dined them. So you can see where she's coming from. She's not innocent in the matter. Okay, in 1 Kings 19.1, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. And he was afraid and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. We heard about that from Matt, how Elijah um, called all the prophets of Baal and the Astra. And he, he said, listen, you make an offering and I make an offering. And whatever God answers, that's the real God. And of course, he had to dump all kinds of water on his offering just to prove how powerful God was. And there was no tricks. And as a result, they killed all these prophets. And what does Jezebel say? By this time tomorrow, you're going to be just like them. I'm going to kill you. Okay, my point in bringing this up was this woman was so formidable that no one would stand up to her. No one. Not even Elijah. Even Elijah ran for his life. She was a very intimidating person. She wielded a lot of power and a lot of influence in an evil, malicious way. Okay, so... I was told at one time, and I need to remember this, if you don't have something good to say about someone, then don't say anything at all. So let's close in prayer. <laughs> She's that bad. Okay? And I know Noah did bring out how the Lord had a love for Ahab. But what this woman represents calls for the justice of God. It's a serious matter. And this is who Ahab aligned himself with. And so, this story is not going to surprise you. There was only one in Israel that would stand up to Jezebel. And we're going to see who that is a little later. It's not Elijah. Okay, so now we come to our story. And that's what we're going to glean from this story. We're going to read the story. And then we're going to take three characters of the story. Ahab, we're going to take um, Jezebel, and we're going to take Naboth. And we're going to talk about a character, uh, an item of their character that stands out. And we're going to see how that might relate to us. Okay, So Ahab, Jezebel, and Naboth. So just pay attention to those characters in the story. 1 Kings 21.1. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now the capital was in Samaria, but the palace of Ahab was in Jezreel. 
Okay? And Naboth lived there and had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Well, a little bit something about Ahab too. Ahab, he built cities. It was said of Solomon that he had a throne of ivory. But Ahab had a palace of ivory. So he had a lot of stuff. You know, um, In some circles, he's considered a great king, albeit an evil king. Okay, So we're going to see what ticks him off here and what it causes him to do. And Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's close beside my house and I will give you a better vineyard in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers and he lay down on his bed and turned his way, his face away from, and ate no food. So, he won't give it to me. I'm not eating anything. What was he doing? A king was not only pouting, he was sulking. A builder of cities, a palace of ivory. And what reduces him to sulking? He can't have his neighbor's garden. How petty. And yet that's the character of the man. And that is the putty that Jezebel could mold to her own whim. And we're going to see that. She was a manipulator. And she had, oh, such a soft piece of clay to manipulate here. Sulking. Okay, but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, How is it that your spirit is so sullen and you're not eating food? What a polite way of saying, Why are you sulking? So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and he said and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now reign in Israel? Arise, eat bread and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in a city. Now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men with him and let them testify against him saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city did as, as, as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned, to, stoned him to death with stones. Now, Jezebel was not inexperienced in this kind of thing. Remember, she was a daughter of a king. No doubt she'd see... She'd seen how her dad, the king, got away with things. But it's noteworthy also that even the elders, the leaders of the people, bowed down to her wishes. Such a despicable act, they didn't question. They just blindly obeyed. It really tells you the spiritual temperature of the people of that region at the time. And perhaps of their fear of Jezebel. You don't say no to her. <laughs> Not if you value your life, your possessions, and your family's life. Because we find that not only Naboth died, but his sons as well. 
We find that later on, I believe, in 2 Kings. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came about when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is, de- is not alive but dead. And it came about when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. So Naboth wouldn't give it free money. We got it for free. And she gloated. What a despicable act. Murder. And it seemed like nothing to her. It was so easy for her to do. And so I want you to think about what character that she has. Because we're going to talk about that a little later. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me? O my enemy. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. And of Jezebel also the Lord has spoken, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one who belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven shall eat. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And he acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. And it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. He wasn't sulking. He was remorseful. He was repentant over what had happened. He was responsible. And I never cease to be amazed at the Lord's compassion and his soft heart towards those that repent. No matter what they've done. That's big. Very big. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring evil in his days, but I will bring evil upon his, upon his house in his son's days. The Lord had compassion on him. So let's find out what happened. In the meantime, a lot of things have happened. We even go from Elijah, Elijah to Elisha, the prophet. Um, we have generations passing. And so in 2 Kings 9, 22, it came about when Joram, which is the son of Ahab, um, Jehoram, Joram, names are interchanged there. And it's, we're going to talk about this a little bit. Both the king of Israel and the king of Judah had kings named Jehoram or Joram. So it makes it a little confusing as you're studying it came about when Joram uh, saw Jehu. Now the Lord sent this man Jehu because he was the one that's going to be able to stand up to Jezebel. 
Um, If you remember the story, he drives a chariot like a race car driver. No one drives like Jehu. Okay, and he had very he had a lot of zeal for the Lord. Okay, when he uh, when Joram saw Jehu, he said, "Is it peace, Jehu?" And he answered, "What peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many." So she was involved in witchcraft. Okay. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head, looked out her window, and as Jehu entered the city gate, she said, "Is it well?" Zimri, your master's murderer, defiant to the end, insulting the only one that could stand up to her. But he was up to the task. Then he lifted up his face to the windows and he said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. And he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And and when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet in the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field and the property of Jezreel. So they cannot say, this is Jezebel. And Ahab had 70 sons, and Jehu saw to them as well. Okay, so that's the story. Pretty gruesome story, isn't it? Three characters. They stand out in their own way. But no one stands out quite like Jezebel, huh? Why in the world did he marry Jezebel? Sometimes we wonder why certain people marry other people. Um, in that day, they had alliances between kings. If your uh, daughter, was, you got her to marry maybe a king's son or a king, well, there was an alliance, so there was a safety and security that, well, they're not going to attack me because my daughter over there, you know. Um, it was something different with Jezebel, though. We're going to look at Jezebel. Now, why was it that she had such an infamous end to her life? Why is it such a grotesque story? Why such judgment that she'd be scattered on the fields in the dung of dogs so that nobody could say, there she is, and build a monument after her? Why would she be eaten by a dog? Such a dishonorable, ignoble end. It's because of the wickedness of her sin. We see what she did to Naboth, but that was just par for the course. Murdering the prophets of God. And it didn't stop there, you see, because she had children. And I did a little studying, and uh, Omri was Ahab's father. Ahab married Jezebel. Okay, they had children. Ahaziah became king in Ahab's place when Ahab died. But Ahaziah, he reigned two years, and he fell through the lattice, and he died, but he had no sons. So the throne went back to maybe the next son in line, which was Jehoram, Ahab's other son, which was, who was, who was his mother? See, Jezebel hadn't died yet. Ahab died before Jezebel. So Jezebel is there at the palace. And who is the king now? Not her husband, but her son. King of Israel. You think she had influence there? Oh, she was a terror. She had influence everywhere. She had influence even in Judah, the other kingdom. 
Jehoshaphat was king. You remember him. He had a son, Jehoram, also named Joram. And he died, and Azahiah became his king. But before he died, he married a woman. Her name was Athaliah. Okay? It says Athaliah is the granddaughter of Omri, which makes Ahab and Jezebel her mother and father. So Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah, is now married to Joram, Jehoshaphat's son. So in one kingdom, my son's the king, and over here, my son-in-law's the king. Now Athaliah had a sister. You might remember the story. This is how wicked Athaliah took right after her mother. Because when uh, Azahiah died at the hands of Jehu, if you remember the story, Jehu, by the order of the Lord, went and he killed Ahab's son. And who was there visiting while his son recuperated? But Azahiah, king of Judah. And as he's escaping, he said, shoot him too. He went, well, well nah, he was just visiting him. He wasn't connected. He wasn't connected? <laughs> he was connected because um, he was the son of Joram and Athaliah. So Jezebel had her influence and control over in Judah as well. Well, why did, why did he kill him? As soon as he died by, at the hands of Jehu, Athaliah, which is his mother, which is Jezebel's daughter, killed all the offspring. Her grandchildren, maybe even her sons, killed them all. You know why? So she could reign. So she could reign. So Jezebel's daughter set herself up as the queen over Judah for a time. And of course, Athaliah had a, a sister who was like the Wicked Witch of the West and the Good Witch of the East. <laughs> Because she had a sister that has gone away. Jo, I think it's jo, uh, jo, um, Jonathan. Uh, one of the sons, six years old, she's hit him. Okay, and then they hit him in the, in, the, um, in the temple. So we could see that the evil of Jezebel infiltrated and weaved its web and its tentacles not only into the life of Israel but Judah as well. And God wanted to extricate it. Very serious matter. It's a reminder of sin, how evil sin is. It all started with eating the forbidden fruit, one bite. One bite. How harmless could that be, just one bite? And yet that one bite has produced people like Jezebel. Look at our world today. The greed, the corruption, the murder, the intrigue, the espionage, the hunger the selfishness from eating one piece of that fruit, one act of disobedience, and sin just weaves its roots through the soil and corrupts everything. So we needn't take pity on Jezebel and her judgment. We should have the same judgment in our lives over sin. We should see how wicked and evil it is in the sight of God. Fortunately, he doesn't treat us as he did Jezebel. Because everybody in this room has the opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he died on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins. So we have three characters. We have Ahab, the sulker. <laughs> we have the conscienceless Jezebel. And we have the content, Naboth. So that's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about covetousness, Ahab. Okay, it says in Exodus 20:17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife 
or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Coveting, coveting. What is coveting? Some people define it as wanting what somebody else has. And that could be things, it could be possession, it could be popularity, it could be power. It could even be spiritual gifts. You can covet somebody else's spiritual gifts. Wow. I like to think of it as an inordinate desire for something. Inordinate in that God doesn't want you to have it. It might be all right for somebody else to have, but God doesn't want you to have it. And for you to want it with that desire is coveting. And coveting has its dangers. And what are the dangers of coveting is what it can lead to. Can coveting lead to lying? Let's look at a modern example. I'll read the story. You guess who it is. Well, I'll tell you who it is. You guess if you remember it. Richard and and Mayumi Heen. Mayumi described that she and Richard Heen devised this hoax approximately two weeks earlier. She and Richard instructed their three children to lie to authorities as well as the media regarding this hoax. The Heens had appeared twice on ABC reality show, Wipes Wap, and acquaintances said Richard Heen had plans for other possible shows. The motive for the fabricated story was to make the Heen family more marketable for a future media interest. So that's what he coveted. The producer of Wife Swap, Wife Swap had a show in development with the Heens but said, now the deal's off. The county sheriff said he will recommend charges against the Heens, including conspiracy, contributing to the delinquency of a minor, making false reports to authorities, attempting to influence a public servant, and they face a maximum of six years in the federal penitentiary for the felony. So can coveting lead to lying? Yes. Is it restricted to just you? Not always. Him and his wife. You remember the story about the kid in the balloon that wasn't in the balloon? That's who it was. So covetous can lead to lying. It can lead to worse things. What's so wrong with wanting something? Well, it's something God doesn't want you to have. Better not covet it because it can lead to many harmful results. Can covetous lead to stealing? Well, there was an instance where 36 men lost their lives because one person stole some things he shouldn't have stole. 36 lives lost. And when we see the punishment for his sins, we needn't wonder why when 36 innocent men lost their lives. That was the sin that happened at AI? I-E? They won a great victory at Jericho. There was a city smaller lot next to it. God said all the uh, plunder, all the... The, the spoil of war from Jericho, that's mine. Don't touch it. There were plenty more cities to conquer. There was plenty more riches to have for themselves. But this city was to be dedicated to God. All the plenty. Well, Achan, once by lot, he was found out. He finally confessed and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, then I coveted them. And I took them. Behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. I buried them in my tent. Then Joshua with all Israel took him, took the Achan, took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons and his daughters, 
his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought him up to the valley of Achor, and all Israel stoned them with stones. They burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised a heap of stones that stands there to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. It's a serious thing, coveting. Now you might think, well, I desire things. I mean, who hasn't at one time or another thought they had a, a different life? They lived a different life. There was something they wanted that seemed too difficult to get, and they began thinking, how can I get that? Who hasn't been jealous of something, not only that somebody else might have, but what somebody else is, the popularity, the spiritual gift, the place, the position they have? Who hasn't? God says it's a serious matter. It can lead even to murder. Can covetousness lead to idolatry? It says Solomon loved many foreign women against the commandment of God. He says in uh, 1 Kings 11.1 or 11.2 that the Lord told him he wasn't even to associate with foreign women. But he stood fast in his love for them. And in his old age, his wife, his wives turned his heart away to other gods. So there's a danger of marrying somebody that's not saved. They can talk, turn your heart away from the Lord to other interests, to other gods, if you will. Anything that steals our heart away from the Lord is not good. Covetousness. Do I desire to be married so bad that I'm willing to think lightly of treading in an area God says not to tread in? Do I want a job that bad? Do I want a position, uh, uh, perhaps a promotion at work that bad? Do I want to be up here preaching that bad? <laughs> it could be anything that could lead to disastrous consequences in our life. Could it lead even to murder? Ask David in his life just one look. He just stole one look that he shouldn't have taken. One little act of coveting. Boy, I'd want her. And it led to idolatry. And finally it led to murder of a righteous man. Covetousness. That's what, guilty, what Ahab was guilty of. And we see it strongly in his character. Let it not be seen in ours. Jezebel. Jezebel. There's much that could be said about Jezebel, but one thing that stands out to me is one thing that she lacks. And because she lacks it, I brought, I brought mine. She lacks a conscience, doesn't she? She lacks a conscience. She could do anything, evil, any evil, and it didn't bother her. I can recall a time in my life before I knew the Lord, where my best friend, the number one thing he admired me for was the things I could do and not have a conscience. He saw that as an asset. He admired that because I had such control over my conscience. It wasn't control. It was a seared conscience. It was an evil, wicked, void of a conscience. 
And so, but now I have a conscience here and I want to show it to you. Because when I was a new Christian, somebody explained a conscience to me. I wonder, well, can you describe it? And they had this illustration. And they said, keep putting it down here so you can anticipate. <laughs> we have a heart of flesh, don't we? And your conscience is supposed to be in your heart. And when you do something wrong, you violate your conscience. And it's like a sharpened triangle with sharp edges. And it sits in your heart. And it spins. Ouch. That hurts. Ouch. I lied. Ouch. I stole something. Ouch. 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 And it doesn't hurt so bad anymore. Yeah. My heart's still calloused. The nice little doll. I can do anything to violate my conscience and it doesn't hurt me. And that's what he admired me for. What a sad thing to admire someone for. And yet that very same spinning of the conscience, wearing the points down, becoming callous can happen to the Christian. I can remember times in my life where I was so sensitive that just at a twitch, ooh, and I was running to apologize to someone. I was running to confess that sin to the Lord. And other times in my life where it was rounded off, I was able to get away with things that I shouldn't have gotten away with. And only in the Lord's mercy did I, didn't, did I not suffer grave consequences as a result. If you know the Lord, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, perhaps it's because those points are rounded because it's spun so many times. It doesn't hurt anymore. What do you do? I think the best thing to do is ask God to sharpen those points. Every last one of them. So that it hurts when I do wrong. That it hurts when I don't accept Jesus. When I'd offer eternal life and I turn it down, it hurts. And I worry about what comes afterwards. A sharpened conscience is an indication that God, by His Holy Spirit, is working in your life. And that is a good thing. And that's what we look for. Is God working? How's that work? Ouch. He's working. Sharpen it a little more, Lord that a soul might be saved. Jezebel didn't have a conscience and she didn't care. She was known for it and feared for it and she had no desire for being sharpened. Do you? Don't be like a Jezebel. Ask for a sharp conscience. The Lord will answer. And my example for that is David. You remember when David was in that cave hiding from Saul and Saul went in to relieve himself and, David was, and Saul was trying to kill David. God said David would be king and here God delivered Saul into his hands because he was relieving himself in there and David was hiding in the cave and he snuck over close to him and he cut off a piece of his garment so that later on he could say, see how close I was? I could have killed you if I wanted to, but I didn't. But he felt bad. It says it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. His conscience was so sharp that he couldn't cut off a, 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 a little clip of a king's robe without feeling bad about it. When that king was trying to kill him unjustly. And yet that same King David could look out when he's not supposed to, commit adultery, and turn around and kill her husband to hide the fact. What happened to his conscience? Had the points rounded, the heart calloused. But there came a time where he asked God to sharpen it and he repented. Maybe you're in that place in your life right now where you need to repent and ask God to sharpen your conscience. David's a tremendous encouragement that anything's possible. God could sharpen even the dullest conscience.
So might I suggest that prayer if that's your condition today. It says in 1 Timothy for the Christian, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later, later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience. He encourages the Christian to keep a good conscience in 1 Peter 3.16. And 1 Timothy 1.18 says, Fight the good fight, keep the faith, and a good conscience. That's what we should be after as Christians. Okay, Jezebel, conscienceless. And next we have Naboth. Naboth. What shall we say about Naboth? Not much is mentioned about him. He had a vineyard. He put his hands to work there. His name has something to do with the vineyard. He was known for his vineyard. He reminds me of a person that the Lord has given him something to do with his hands and he puts his hands to do it with all his heart. It says in Leviticus 25, 23, the land moreover shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine. You are but aliens and sojourners with me. So they, were to, they weren't to sell their ancestral land. There were occasions where they had to because perhaps they'd fallen on bad times, become poor and they had to sell it to pay off debt. But it was to revert back to the family in the year of Jubilee every 50 years. So that was God's intention, is that the land stay with the family. And so he was content with what God gave him. And, he did, and it looks like Nabal, or King Ahab was offering even more than it was worth. A better place. Maybe be higher up on the hill, who knows? Naboth, nope, I'm happy with this one. This is my inheritance from the Lord. Family heritage. And he was content with what the Lord gave him. And so we want to think about that. It says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. So we have to ask ourselves, are we content with what the Lord's given us? Are you content with where you live? Are you content with the house in which you live or the apartment? Are you content with your job? Are you content with Calvary Bible Chapel? Are you content with the Lord? Because I believe all lack of contentment is really lack of contentment with the Lord. It's focusing on the Lord. If the Lord dishes me out my plate and I don't like it, it's because I don't like the Lord. I'm grumbling and complaining against Him. And there's nothing that draws my heart more to contentment than gazing at the cross at Calvary. Seeing how much God really loves me. Seeing how much He was willing to give. He gave it all. He died on the cross for me and he died on the cross for you so that we can be in heaven with him. And that's what it's all about. It's all about eternity. It's all about eternity. Where will you spend eternity? Because the beginning of a lack of contentment can lead to an eternity without God. And boy, will that be lack of contentment. God wants us to be content with what he gives us. He gives us the best. And to be moaning and groaning and complaining, which I confess I do that, is really a false indictment against God, saying that he doesn't give the best and he does. Naboth was content. Content. I had a friend, his name was Larry Stavosky, he's still my friend, I don't see him very often, but I can remember, he always had this saying wherever we went, hey Larry, need anything? Because I'd be going to the uh, tool room to get some tools or I'd be going to another side of the shop. He said, yeah, Winning ticket to the lottery. He'd always say that. You know, some people, I mean, who hasn't dreamed 
or let's put it less strongly, mused on winning the lottery. You know, you see, oh, let's put $60 million here, $100 million there. Even if it's divided up into 20 years and you only get half of what they promised, it's still a lot of money, right? What surprises me, what really surprises me, is, and, and I have to confess I've never played the lottery as a Christian, but I know some Christians that have. And I, I don't make any bones about it that I don't play the lottery. Some of my unsaved friends ask me, how come you don't play the lottery? Doesn't God want to make you rich? And I say, I don't play the lottery because if God wanted to make me a millionaire, he doesn't need no stinking lottery to do it. Right? I mean, if, God, if that was the best for me, God would give it to me and I wouldn't have to play the lottery. And besides, I don't think it's good to gamble. But I oftentimes wonder, well, if I had $10 million, what I would do, right? And of course, we like to think what we would do if we had it. And chances are, if we did have it, we wouldn't do that. But we, we tend to think better of ourselves in those kind of circumstances, right? But Larry would always say that. So most people at least once have mused about winning millions of dollars in the lottery. Wouldn't it be nice to have a mountain of money and coast through life, not having to worry about how to pay bills and being able to afford new cars, college education for the kids, which is high on my list, and lavish vacations all over the world. That doesn't appeal to me that much, but I'll go for it. An article from MSNBC, Money Central, reveals that winning the lottery doesn't always match the fantasy. In fact, it can be worse than losing. The article reports on the sad fates of eight lottery winners who experienced bankruptcy, drug abuse, and sometimes even prison as a result of winning the lottery. You don't hear those stories too much, do you? Frequently what happens to lottery women, uh, winners, say financial planners interviewed for the story, is that they are pestered by relatives and friends asking for money to pay off debts or to invest in dubious business propositions. One of the, uh, one of the advisors interviewed for the story said often they can keep the money and lose family and friends, or lose the money and keep family and friends, or even lose the money and lose family and friends. One typical winner turned loser is William Budd Post, who won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery in 1988, a long time ago. Numbers are up now. His ex-girlfriend sued him and got a share. His own brother tried to have him killed in the hopes uh, that he'd inherit the money. And his other relatives convinced him to invest in businesses that failed. After just one year, Post was a million dollars in debt and was being hounded by bill collectors. He was sent to jail for a year for firing his gun over the head of a debt collector. Today, Post gets by on $450 a month in Social Security and food stamps. So we don't always do what we think we might do if such and such happened. Be content. How many people in here have gone hungry? involuntarily we have plenty contentment I have a friend at work and he's a real example to me because I tend to be and it's a sin I tend to be pessimistic and I've always comforted myself in the lie that if I expect the worst and it doesn't happen I won't be disappointed right because <laughs> something better will happen right a bad way to think it's certainly not a Christian viewpoint but he's an encouragement to me because he he reminds me, he said Eric I heard this said once I want to tell you that I believe that if everybody took all their problems and threw them in the middle of the room everybody would be racing as hard as they can to get their own back if we took everybody's problem put them in the middle of the room 
Everybody would be racing as fast as they can to get their own back. And I started thinking about that. There's a lot of truth to that. We tend to feel sorry for ourselves, wish things were different, we're not really content, it'd be better if, 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 until we hear the problems of another. And then we think, wow, I don't have it so bad. I should stop complaining. And I'd like to close. I read uh, a tract when I was a new Christian. Because when I was a new Christian, I was stumbled sometimes. I can remember um, I'd grown a lot up since then. And I got a long way to go. But I can remember going to Fairhaven on my motorcycle and I saw a car. And it was like a white Cadillac. And it had on the license plate, John 3-3 or something like that. And I'm thinking, what? Bible verse on a Cadillac? That doesn't make sense. You know, I was very immature. In my, I didn't know too much, you know, other than deny everything for the Lord, right? Here's somebody that didn't want to deny his Cadillac. I don't know. I followed him. I, I, I happened to be going to Fairhaven for, for meeting. And guess where he pulled into Fairhaven, he was going to the same church. <laughs> I can remember talking to Rick. I, I think I was like two weeks old in the Lord. I said, Rick, I said, that guy can't be a Christian, can he? <laughs> I was very immature. You know? But I was stumbled because I thought, well, you know, the Lord in my life had me do without certain things. And I knew that he wanted me to do without certain things. But that doesn't mean he wanted other people to do without it. And I'm thinking, well, how is that? I get it from the word, don't they read the word? If it says this to me, doesn't it say that to them? <laughs> Very immature way of looking at things. And I read a tract that really gave me encouragement. And, I, I, and I'll have to say, it's like Bill McDonald when he wrote True Discipleship. Don't think that, that because I'm reading this, I got this under my belt because I don't. But it's, it's good to be reminded of it. So I'd like to read it to you and close in prayer afterwards. Others may, you cannot. By the track league. If God has called you to be really like Jesus... He will draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility. God will put such demands of obedience on you that you will not be able to follow other people or measure yourself by other Christians. At times, he will let other people do things which he will not let you do. Other Christians who seem very religious will push themselves, pull wires, work schemes to carry out their plans. Nobody in this church, I'm not talking about anybody. You cannot... And if you attempt to, you will meet with failure and rebuke from the Lord. Others may boast themselves of their work, of their successes, but the Holy Spirit will not allow you to do any such thing. And if you begin it, he will lead you to despise yourself and all your good works. Others may be allowed to succeed in making money or may have a legacy left to them, but it's likely God will keep you poor. God wants you to have something far better than gold, namely a helpless dependence upon him that he may demonstrate his faithful love for you in supplying your needs day by day God may let others be honored and put forward and keep you hidden in obscurity in order to produce some fragrant fruit for his coming glory which can only be produced in the shade he may let others be great but keep you small he may let others do a work for him and get the credit for it now the reward for your work is held in the hands of Jesus and you will not see it until he comes. The Holy Spirit will put a strict watch over you with a jealous love. He will rebuke you for the little words and feelings or for wasting your time. So make up your mind that God is an infinite sovereign and he has the right to do as he pleases with his own. He does not owe you an explanation of these mysteries, but if you give yourself to be his child, he will wrap you up in a jealous love. 
and give you the precious blessings for those who belong, heart and soul, to him. Settle it forever, then, that you are to deal directly with the Holy Spirit. It is his option to tie your tongue or chain your hand, to close your eyes in ways that he does not seem to use with others. And when you are so possessed by the living God that your heart delights over this peculiar, personal, private, jealous guardianship and management of the Holy Spirit over your life, you have found the vestibule of heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are indeed a wonderful God. You've made us all different. Such a variety in creation. And you deal with us in different ways, oftentimes. And so, Lord, we pray that each one of us would find our joy, our contentment in you and your personal dealings with us in our individual lives. Keep us from looking at others, Lord, and your dealings with them. Keep us looking to you. You've been faithful thus far, and you're a faithful God to the end. And so we want to commit our hearts to you. Lord, and want to say, you're everything to us. We love you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for us and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.